The Charles Adler Show starts now. Proud to have the opportunity to bring on uh, one of the best writers in this country. He happens to be with the Toronto Star. His name is uh, Bruce Arthur. But before we bring uh, Bruce on, uh, there's uh, something I, I, I need to say. I, I said some of this in uh, my three minutes uh, that matter, and that's available on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. But I just want to repeat uh, some of this. For the last few years, I have focused on how many people on the right have polluted their minds and, and lost their way. And little did I know that one day Hamas would be burning and beheading Jewish children. Many on the left, the far left, choose not to respond to any of this with empathy and indignation. They prefer anti-Semitism, Jew hatred. I don't have to tell them who they are. And then there are the enablers of Hamas propaganda, like the leader of CUPE Ontario. That's a massive public sector union. It's a national union. This is the Ontario division, which is the biggest. And yes, I'm looking at you, sir, ashamed of you and your enthusiastic willingness to be a useful idiot for Hamas by playing the sophomoric game about ends justifying means. You know they don't. And before we go to Bruce Arthur on something completely different, I want to repeat uh, the words of Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz. He says, at this moment, there's only one place for Germany, the place at Israel's side, our own history, our responsibility, Germany's responsibility arising from the Holocaust makes it a perpetual task for us to stand up for the security of the state of Israel. So I want to thank the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and in German, I'd like to say thank you, Dankeschön. So having said all of that, we're going to create a very, very rough bridge here because what we're about to talk about has nothing to do with the above, but it's important that I needed to, to restate it here for those people who uh, weren't able to access three minutes uh, that matters. Bruce Arthur, welcome back to the Charles Adler Show. Uh, Charles, it's always good to be here. On, on that topic, I've been really disappointed by some on the far left as well. I think, to me, the root of it is just simplistic thinking. The idea of oppressor and oppressed, the idea, as opposed to the idea of humanity. And I think this is one of the biggest hot-button issues on the planet. I've talked to friends on who kind of have sympathies on both sides. And, it's, and the, it, 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 it touches people in a really deep place. Um, but if you just hold on to humanity, hold on to the idea that no civilian should be slaughtered, that no child should be killed, um, I think that's about that's the mask that I like that I strap myself to. I'm interested in hearing from humane and articulate, passionate voices on both sides. Uh, interested in, in hearing uh, policy on both sides. Disappointed as hell that uh, we don't yet have a sovereign Palestinian state uh, alongside the sovereign Jewish state. But I have never in my mind, based on the rhetoric I've seen and now the actions of this organization known as Hamas, which absolutely controls Gaza, I've never believed that they represent the Palestinian people. They're obviously not the best representatives of the cause. And pardon me for, you know, to, to some people who are sounding arrogant. I'm not trying to tell the Palestinians who should represent them, but I'll never believe that these people do. And I just don't believe that they have the interests of Palestinians at stake when they commit the barbaric acts in Israel. They know fully well that that comes back on them. And Bruce, just before we leave that alone, and feel free to comment on this, 
is something that is not said uh, publicly and not said frequently is important here. The leaders of this organization are the biggest cowards on earth. They don't live in Gaza. The leaders of this organization live in Qatar, and they live in, 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 in absolute splendor. They live in palatial surroundings because this organization gets money from Iran and elsewhere, and the leaders aren't in Gaza. Yes, there are some military leaders in Gaza, but the people who really head up Hamas uh, and the people who benefit the most don't live anywhere around uh, Gaza. They live in um, in Qatar, the United Arab Emirates. I want to give you a chance to, on that or anything else uh, regarding that topic before we move on. When I was talking to a Jewish friend yesterday, uh, what he said was, from an Israeli perspective, this is the natural response. And everybody knew that once the massacres happened, this would be the Israeli response, right? Turn, turn Gaza into a parking lot. Um, if you are the leader of Hamas, this has to be what you expected and maybe wanted. And if you are the leader of Hamas and don't live in Gaza, how exactly does this create a long-term solution for the Israelis is the question I have. Because this looks like something that will, I don't, they're going to go further, right? They're going to go further than they've gone in previous uh, situations like this. It's going to radicalize a lot of people. It's going to traumatize a lot of people. A lot of civilians have already died and are dying right now. Um, none, nothing I see here is a long-term solution. And maybe that's just, maybe that's just the song that, that plays over this entire conflict forever and ever. Amen. Right. Well, if you, uh, if you examine the history of uh, that part of the world, there never are any long-term solutions. Uh, all they try to do is uh, uh, create some short-term relief, make it impossible for them to be uh, operational uh, for a while, and then they uh, they they come back uh, w- with more. I mean, that's been the case since the very beginning. But if, if you're uh, the head of the Israeli Defense Force, if you're the uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, if you're anybody participating in government operations or intelligence operations, my simple question to you, Bruce Arthur, is: What choice do you have in light of what happened over the weekend? None. You, I, 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 you can't say none. Because there are always degrees, um, but a a vicious response was everybody again. Everybody had to know, and in Israel, there's a significant amount of anger over what has happened here, and not just in terms of Hamas, but in terms of their own leadership. Um, they this was like in terms of proportion to pro- population. This was between something like ten and twenty nine eleven. Oh sure. yeah, it's just uh, you, when you do the math, it's and the numbers the numbers keep you know piling higher and higher. I mean, there are over three thousand Israelis, uh, military and civilians, over three thousand wounded right now, and among the wounded, many of course are critically wounded, which means the death toll goes up. Um, the the deaths just simply from the attack in the last few days, the the deaths in Israel are in the thousands. I mean, I, I, I hope they don't turn Gaza into a parking lot. I don't know how you do a totally surgical operation there, and I'm, I'm not a military expert. I don't, I don't pretend to be. But I don't think there's anybody who uh, you know, supports uh, Israel uh, that wants uh, people to see I- Israelis the way people see Hamas terrorists. And, of course, that's going to be the propaganda from now on. But I just, uh, you know, I just honestly do not see uh, any way 
that uh, any government in Israel would have any support unless they did everything necessary and used all means necessary to disarm and disable Hamas. I'm old enough to remember what happened after 9-11, not just in the United States, but on a global scale, and how profoundly destabilizing an event that was, how profoundly it reshaped uh, the calculus of international relations, of how we lived our lives in some ways. Um, and I, I get the same vibes here. I get the same feeling of this is the consequences of this will stretch so far into our future. And all you can hope for now, honestly, is that it doesn't get as bad as it could get because the number of options on the table for how bad this could get are significant. I think you're making an excellent point. Uh, for many, many years, we don't say it anymore, but for many, many years, we were calling it a post 9 11 uh, world. Uh, that was a language that was used all around the planet. And I, I think, although it hasn't been said yet, but I think we'll get to a point, especially if this war widens and involves other countries, I think we'll get to a point where we talk about um, a post Hamas massacre world. Uh, there, there might be a different uh, word for it. And maybe it'll be numbers, like with 9-11, you know, we'll do the numbers on on the day in October this happened, and then maybe we'll call it that. But this this is as big a deal as September 11th, 2001. And if anyone thinks that uh, it isn't, I think they, they might be on the naive side, Bruce. Yeah, if, if you don't think so, just wait. Yeah. Bruce, one of the reasons I brought you on is uh, you wrote another excellent column about this, I, I what I think of as this ridiculous opposition that the National Hockey League as a corporate entity has uh, toward uh, pride, uh, toward uh, people who want uh, to use uh, the opportunities of associating uh, the players in the National Hockey League and the fans of the National Hockey League uh, with the LGBT uh, movement, even something like occasionally using uh, the rainbow colors um, for tape for for hockey tape, uh, Gary Bettman came down hard. Uh, go as long as you want here on on giving context for this, and and if you can offer us specifics on who the real opponents are, because I have a feeling this is another situation where a small minority of people are leveraging a lot of power unnecessarily. Okay, so let's go back a couple of years. Uh, the the NHL has been working to become a more diverse league. It's perhaps the least diverse sport, major sport in North America, other than perhaps golf. Um, this is an incredibly white sport, uh, a little less so now in this country in terms of the kids who are playing it. But at the highest levels, it is still white guy after white guy after white guy. We talk so much about the culture of hockey, and that's the culture of hockey. It feels a lot like a small town in the 50s. Um but they had been actually trying. Kim Davis was running the department that was basically involved in uh, diversity, in outreach, in trying to bring groups into hockey that weren't there before. And so one of those was the LGBTQ movement. Now, Brian Burke, who's the former general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Vancouver Canucks, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, he's been all over the place, Anaheim. Um, his son, Brendan, came out publicly died in a car accident quite tragically. Um, I think it's about 15 years ago now. Uh, not quite. Um, and Brian became an outspoken advocate and a few others did in hockey as well. 
And so that had been slowly building. You Can Play was formed by Brian and his son, Brendan, or son Patrick, rather. Um, and uh, and it's become kind of a, a significant LGBTQ advocacy organization. And what happened in the last year changed something. Because the NHL was trying, not on, a, not on a vast level, but they were trying. They had a department dedicated to do this. And then they lent their support to a trans hockey tournament in Minnesota. They didn't run it. They didn't really sponsor it, but they lended their support to it. And they got pushback. They were on Fox News four days in a row. Um, in January, they held a job fair in Florida. And it was basically dedicated to finding people who didn't look like hockey or the traditional version of hockey. Try to bring in more diverse people into like it was a very small little thing little job fair it got found by the far right that got sent to ron DeSantis, the governor of florida ron DeSantis blasted it and once again the nhl was in the crosshairs of the american right and since then this league has been running scared so in i think it was february philadelphia was going to have their pride night the first pride night was taken was uh, undertaken in florida ironically enough in 2013, they've been doing this for 10 years. No problems. Literally zero problems that we have seen from the NHL having pride nights. So the Flyers say we want the players to wear pride jerseys in the warm-ups. And Ivan Provorov, a defenseman, a Russian, says no. And that happens a few more times as this as pride nights move around the league. The Stahl brothers, Eric and Jordan, James Reimer, uh, deep Mennonite, almost Mennonite beliefs. Um a lot of Russians, entire teams decide not to wear the jersey. And this causes a little bit of consternation. This is where there's a moment at which this becomes more than just business. So Gary Bettman, I think incredibly heavy-handedly and almost in a panicked way, doesn't just ban pride jerseys from warm-ups. He bans military appreciation night jerseys, indigenous night jerseys. Canadian teams have actually been doing a really good job, some really beautiful stuff. Uh, all across the country over the last couple of years. Um, hockey fights cancer. Those jerseys are gone. Those, those warm-up jerseys are gone. Everything. All specialty jerseys are no longer worn before uh, a game. And he and Gary's using Major League Baseball on this because Major League Baseball said no pride jerseys during games. They didn't say no pride anything during warm-up. Gary went further than Major League Baseball. But even then, you could say, and the defense here is essentially that a small number of players were made to feel incredibly uncomfortable and were singled out for their beliefs, beliefs that I profoundly disagree with, because I don't think wearing a pride jersey makes you gay or makes you say that the gays are, are my friends. It says these people are welcome here. It's very simple that way. Um, but you could argue that I can see that as an argument. Banning pride tape is where this crosses into ideology because pride tape on pride nights, that's the only time it ever gets busted out, right? One pride night per team per year, 15 minutes. That only like that is not mandated at all. There's never been a team that says everybody uses pride tape because there's the easiest out in the world, which is all a player has to say is I'm pretty superstitious and you don't have to, you just use the same tape every time. So that was something that was purely optional. 
And it was purely something that a, a player could choose to do. There was never a question about that. Gary banning that tells you that this league doesn't want the LGBT community anywhere near its players. They cannot ever, under any circumstances, go onto the ice. And that, to me, is a league that is terrified of the right-wing push against the LGBT movement right now, which is something we've seen here in Canada as well. And it's a league that, I don't know this for sure, but I have an idea. I think there's a certain amount of sympathy to that viewpoint. I think hockey wants to stay and pull itself backwards to being the 1950s Canadian small town that it's almost always been. But fundamentally, if we're, we're talking about the major players here, I'm not talking about hockey players, but uh, the players in, in the ideological cultural wars. If we're talking about the major player that Gary Bettman is afraid of, it's Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, wants to be president, but it's Ron DeSantis and the American right. I mean, is that, is that the way you see it, Bruce? Is, is that who is intimidating Gary Bettman the most? Fox News, too. I mean, they got on Tucker Carlson back when Tucker Carlson was still doing his completely un increasingly unhinged mm -hmm. show on Fox. I think that's exactly what they're scared of. Now, and if you think about it, that is a, a, a not an uncommon dynamic in American culture right now. Think about Bud Light, right? The boycott effort aimed at Bud Light because they did one, one-day partnership with a trans person. All those, all those cases of beer that were getting shot, one trans person. And it's not just them. It's happened to Target. It's happened to a bunch of different brands where the American right is so worked up and so angry and so easy to mobilize against something that they find distasteful, in this case, the LGBTQ movement, um, that they will they, they get unleashed. Right. And that happened to the NHL. I, I've been told that the NHL, after the, the trans hockey tournament, after they get on Fox News, they receive... Um, death threats, they receive letters, they were all the stuff that you'd expect, right? Um, and they're terrified of that because I think they think that a significant number of those people are their audience. Now, more with Charles Adler. Well, uh, you know me by now, Bruce, I don't like to pretend that I don't know what I do know. And uh, in my tour of duty in the 90s in uh, the United States, I got um, offers uh, that included obscene amount, amounts of uh, money and all kinds of uh, benefits had I turned myself into a religious commentator. So they were, you know, mostly, uh, mostly um, I have to say, evangelical uh, Christian groups who were making uh, these offers. But uh, all of them were contingent on one very, very important file, and that was the LGBT file, which at the, moment, at the time wasn't called the LGBT file. So it's simply the, the word uh, gay, and there were other terms that were really heinous, and I'm not going to repeat, that were used. But it was uh, the, it didn't matter who was making the offer. It was, uh, Chuck, you've got it, because they were you know aware of my work, and they were aware of, of what I, I did not support. I did not support all of the opposition to equal marriage and the, uh, the gay agenda, as it were. And so all of them said um, that the offer was contingent on me uh, changing my mind, or as some said, uh, coming to Jesus on, um, on the gay issue. And once again, 
it wasn't even the word gay that they used. It was another word, uh, F word and some others that I'm not going to use here. So I can just tell you that um, based on, and I'm talking about that movement now as a business because these were business propositions that I was being offered. As a, as a fact of business, it would seem that nothing generates more business for them than the anti-gay, anti-trans uh, work that they're doing, which is one of the reasons why you see uh, Governor DeSantis and some other Republican politicians very much on the bandwagon. This gets social conservatives in the states more inflamed than anything else, and yes, more inflamed than abortion. I was having a talk with uh, a colleague who had also covered COVID and has also um, written stuff about trans issues. Both he and I have done this. <clears throat> and we, we kind of came around to agreeing that the pushback against trans issues is more unhinged, more angry, more savage than the anti-vaccine movement was. And remember, the anti-vaccine movement started with, this will be Nuremberg 2.0 and we will see you at the end of a rope for pushing vaccines. Um, but the anti-trans movement is so deep and angry. And, and, and you're right to point out, it's, this is an old prejudice. It's a very old bigotry. The, the word trans has basically replaced the word gay in the 1980s. In the 1980s, we were talking about whether gay kids should be outed at school. We were talking about whether or not they could come out. Uh, and now we're talking about trans kids in the same way. This is all old. This Million Man March that happened in Canada, <clears throat> I'm sure that there are parents in there, <clears throat> pardon me, who had genuine fears about information being kept from them in schools. But that's, that's how parenthood works. How many kids come home and tell you everything that happened in that day at school? My kids trust me, and they don't tell me everything. But I like to think that on the big important stuff, they would tell me that stuff, right? And what happened with the Million Man March in this country was the mobilization of far-right groups plus far-right conservative groups, especially Muslim, Sikhs, and, and, and kind of a, groups that had always been there in a conservative sense had never been mobilized before. That's the moment that we're in, is attacking the LGBTQ movement and trying to roll back the social progress of the last 30 years. The NHL has chosen a side here. And that, to me, is the really significant part. Because most leagues are, are still, like Major League Baseball, which is a, a far more right-wing oriented league, allows players to wear rainbow gear in warm-ups if they want. The NHL does not. Where does the union uh, stand on this? Uh, they're known as the National Hockey League uh, Players Association. Do they care? Great question. Nobody knows. I have asked them. My colleagues have asked them. Up until, as far as I know, and I haven't checked my email yet this morning uh, on this particular issue in the last 20 minutes, the NHLPA has been dead silent. And, and I think there's an implication there. The vast majority of players in the NHL wore pride sweaters and didn't care. And some of them were really enthusiastic about it. But the union is, is based on protecting every player. And so I, I think they're doing some math and I think they're talking to some people and I think they're probably, I suspect 
I, I'll be surprised if they come down on the NHL and are really critical of them. Uh, let me just throw out a rough number here, and it has nothing to do with hockey. It has to do with, with men. Um, and I can't uh, give you a scientific analysis here, so I'm just giving you m- the benefit of my own experience and men, whatever, feeling free to unburden themselves, uh, whether it's on the progressive left or the, the, the far right, it doesn't matter. Over the years, uh, different people unburden themselves on issues on this specific issue. It's the, the men who are the, by far the, the most intense. I would say that 10%, approximately 10% of guys who talk to me about this are just obviously, like palpably hateful. Let's just use the word homophobic to be uh, relatively polite in this uh, Canadian conversation. Is it possible, Bruce, I'm just speculating a little bit here. Is it possible that about one out of every 10 hockey players, and they're all members of the same union, but about one out of 10 are out-and-out homophobes, and the NHLPA just doesn't want the issue? I don't know the exact number. It's possible. I think it could be representative. I think that there is an insular culture in hockey which can create a distrust of people who aren't like you. That's one of the problems, one of the fundamental problems of hockey as a culture. Um, and But, I mean, if you look at the people who have been actually vocal about this, there's kind of two categories. <clears throat> there are your your Russian players, and that is a country which has used LGBTQ people as a scapegoat for probably the last, like, especially the last 10 or 15 years. They've really pushed into that. Yeah, they just so everyone's clear, the, the Putin administration is overtly homophobic. It's uh, tougher in Russia than it is in, in most relatively modern countries uh, to be outwardly, to be to be out. M- many people uh, in Russia who are, are gay are highly closeted. It's not in your interest politically or even personally. Uh, to be known as gay. Well, like there's a few Russian players who have come out and have who have spoken out against this. Have spoken out against Putin and against the war specifically. Um, those people probably aren't going back to Russia, right? Like in the off season, that those are those are Russians who are going to stay here. I imagine it'd be the same on the LGBTQ uh, issue. Um, the other category is your religious conservatives. <clears throat> Sorry. So that is James Reimer. Uh, the goaltender, that is the Stahl brothers. There are more whose names we don't know, and that's okay. Like, you're allowed to be that way. But to me, the the story here is the league had been trying to make progress to diversify the appeal of its game. And now it is going to try to hold Pride Nights. And some Pride Nights by teams, just like Indigenous Nights, like Military Appreciation Nights, like Hockey Fights Cancer Nights, teams did a really nice job of making this into an inclusive environment. Like some teams have really gone the extra mile and done some really good things. They're going to try to keep having these Pride Nights in a league where the commissioner has essentially said, we don't want this anywhere near our goddamn players when there's a camera on them. And that to me is an inherent contradiction. That to me is telling people you are not really welcome, except except maybe the wallet. Your your LGBTQ wallet is welcome. And that to me, again, this is this is going backwards. And I've heard this from a lot of people in hockey in the last little while. This is a league that is going backwards. And I don't know if they are hedging their bets that Donald Trump gets elected in 2024. I don't know if they are just 
assuming that their fans think the way some people in the front office of the NHL do. But if you look at the actual breakdown of who is an NHL fan in the United States, they have a strong young fan base. So not, not a majority, but a big section of their fan base is under 40. And you look at the political beliefs of those people when it comes to LGBTQ people, I don't think the NHL is playing to their future. I think the NHL is sprinting into their past. But the NHL does care about uh, some of their parents, and some of their parents are, uh, you know, social conservatives and, and others who are really caught up in this anti-gay, especially anti-trans uh, movement. Uh, Bruce, whatever happened to the idea that hockey uh, was wrapping its arms around, uh, you know, old-fashioned values of courage, uh, bravery? I mean, there's no, there's nothing about this that is is courageous it just it just feels so cowardly uh, to to bend uh to a um, a vocal and sometimes a non-vocal uh minority does courage does, i mean doesn't it matter i mean i'm trying to i guess at this point appeal uh, to just the the old-fashioned uh, macho thing that uh, hockey has always been about it just doesn't feel macho it doesn't feel terribly masculine uh, to be on your knees about this i would say in Canada especially, we have always considered hockey as a proxy for character. And at this point, we should probably know that that's not actually true. But it, it, hockey does require an enormous amount of self-sacrifice in terms of ego, in terms of your body, in terms of your lifestyle. Like Hockey players have to kill themselves for a chance to win a coin flip. There needs to, there's a certain amount of courage that does come with the game. Some of that stuff is real. And we in Canada sing songs of that, right? That this is our game. This is our national game. This is who we are. How many times have people said that? Well, you know, basics, uh, Bruce, I mean, uh, how many of us uh, don't think that a guy has a lot of guts uh, when he's trying to protect his uh, goalie and he gets on his knees uh, stopping a slap shot with equipment, of course, uh, that is is okay, but not as good as, as the goaltenders, we see that as a as a macho thing. We see that as a, a courageous thing, and I'm just saying that you know hockey more than any other of, of the of the major sports uh, just requires a lot of a lot of basic courage. But this particular action, I mean, even banning the pride tape, <laughs> if that isn't cowardly, I don't know what is. Well, and what what do they tell you in hockey? You do this for your teammates. You do this because it's a brotherhood or a sisterhood. You do this because you're part of something bigger. And that's what it takes to be great at hockey. Whether or not you're Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby or Connor Bedard or Wayne Gretzky, whoever it is, you are not bigger than the game. You gotta be, you're in this with everybody else. What this is seems to be about is very carefully delineating the borders of how far that philosophy goes. And and it really is about. Take a look at the league. Take a look at who runs the league. The same people have been in there, almost exclusively white guys, and a lot of them old white guys, for 20 years, for 30 years. Gary doesn't fire people. Colin Campbell has been the most powerful non-Gary person in hockey, you could probably argue, for almost 30 years. Colin Campbell can't be trusted with an email account and is not in any way someone who is sensitive to the modern progressive social movements that a lot of us are part of. And that's the league, though. 
that we we ask why hockey is like this when when things happen in hockey we ask why is hockey like this this is why yeah then it, and it's been like this forever H- how many openly gay men are there playing in the national hockey league right now? i'm talking about open <clears throat> openly it's never happened well we it, it, well it hasn't happened in any major sport right that someone has come out while they are playing until i believe jason collins towards the very end of his nba career but in the NHL, we've never had an openly gay player. In the NFL, we've never had a... The, actually, that's not true. Carl Nisab of the Las Vegas Raiders was the, the first openly gay, I believe, player in the NHL or in the NFL. But let's just be really honest with each other. If we're, if we're talking about one here and one there, we're talking about these leagues living a big lie. I mean, no, 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 no human being who knows anything about the real world believes that you've got thousands of men involved in the National Football League, National Basketball Association, uh, Major League Baseball, National Hockey League, and and that almost none of them are gay. I mean, you'd have to be nuts to buy that. And what does this, what does doing this tell you about how the league views you? If you're, not only if you're a a gay player, closeted gay player, if you're a gay fan, uh, what are they telling you? They are telling you that the people who hate you matter more than the people who don't. Bingo. Glad you said it. That's what needs to be said, that uh, these leagues uh, support, uh, embrace, uh, defend the people who hate you more than you. I mean, that's, uh, that, that is a hell of a statement. My, my guess is if uh, someone put a microphone to Gary... Uh, Batman's uh, mouth and said, uh, why, why do you have uh, stronger affection uh, for people who hate gay people than you do for gay people? My, my guess is Gary uh, Batman would refuse to answer that question. But that's the question that you and I need to ask and that many others need to ask right now. I mean, is that, is that, um, is that pushing it uh, too far? I mean, is that, is that not really what, what this comes down to? Right? Who does the league want to support? Do they want to support a significant percentage of humanity that happens to be LGBT, or do they want to support a much smaller percentage of humanity that wants to hate on them? Well, the the sad part about this is there's probably a, re- a reasonable audience in the United States for hating gay people in the conservative movement. There is an audience, not a huge audience, but there is an audience like that in Canada. We've seen it. I would say that Again, you can make an argument that simply eliminating the specialty jerseys was eliminating a distraction, and it was taking away the discomfort that certain a small group of players felt. I think I don't. Again, I don't agree with that argument. You can make that argument. Nobody asked for pride tape to be banned. Nobody considered it that big a deal. Nobody had to use it. Nobody wanted it gone. And the NHL, by going that far, sent the strongest signal that I have ever seen as to where their true philosophy, ideology, and sympathies lie. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a pitch for the uh, for the haters. I mean, that's basically Gary Bettman, the National Hockey League, saying it. We're we're aware of you, and uh, we respect you. And uh, here's what we're doing to to show you that, uh, Bruce. Before I let you go, I know that uh, one of the issues that you've been all over is uh, the Greenbelt issue in Ontario. And uh, now uh, it was uh, your organization, the uh, Toronto Star, that broke the story this week that the RCMP has the Ford government uh, in 
uh, under its magnifying glass that it's official now because uh, the RCMP confirmed this. Uh, the Ford government is under a criminal investigation. Um, would the RCMP be criminally investigating Doug Ford if they didn't have evidence of whether the evidence was gathered by the OPP or, or some other agency, whether it came from leaks? Would the RCMP confirm that they are investigating and that it's a criminal investigation of the Ford government if they didn't already have evidence? Uh, I heard that there was some talk among some conservatives. Uh, this is about two or three weeks ago. Was the, Their question was, is Doug Ford going to wind up in jail? And this was this was not among liberals, this was not among the NDP, this was among conservatives. Um, and the question was, does the RCMP have the guts to actually go after a sitting premier? Now, I don't know how true that is or how accurate that is, but I will say this. If you look at how the Ford government has handled development, and this is something that is desperately needed in Ontario, like it is in a lot of places across the country, and you can start with the green belt, which seems to be a transparently corrupt process. But then you go, well, the Auditor General is now looking at MZOs, which is basically a way to eliminate, for the government to specifically eliminate regulations in certain areas so that you can build things. And then you look at the Ontario line and which developers bought up property before the Ontario line, the Crosstown line, in, or, or the, the Crosstown Eglinton line even, in, in uh, Toronto before those were built. Highway 413, we've written about that. There's a lot of developers who are very similar to the Greenbelt crew who are going to benefit enormously financially from a highway being built in a part of the province that maybe doesn't necessarily need to be built. If you, The more this gets dug into, the, more, the bigger chance that this is, this is going to be not just a green belt scandal, but a, a whole of government scandal. And the real question probably if you're looking at where how high this goes is where did the idea come from? Who pushed the idea that this is this is that this solution to the housing crisis, a real thing that is dumb that would not actually solve the housing crisis that was not about affordable housing at any point. Their own reports say that. Who decided that this was how they were going to respond to the to one of the public policy crises of our lifetime? The more the older I get, the more I think that elections about are not just about electing people who you believe in, but about electing the least worst option. Because in this country, we haven't had to deal with a lot of major crises, really. Like we really haven't compared to other countries. And now what's happening in this country, I think we've talked about this is the bills are coming due on long-term care, on health care, on housing, on education, on climate, all these things that we have let go and let and kicked down the path for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It's owned by all kinds of government. All I can say is elect serious people as much as you can because we're heading for serious times. And elect uh, serious people who uh, aren't, and I, I'll throw in all the nice words here, allegedly accused, no one's been uh, convicted, but elect serious people who aren't uh, crafting policies uh, for their wealthiest donors. Bruce, <laughs> thanks for the inspiration on several files, including this one. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Chuck. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.